horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change, do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's ask for his help now, as we always do, as we consider it now in the preaching of it. Let's pray. Father, now as we come before this, your word, we are reminded again of the promise that you gave us and that you continue to give to us that as we ask for your spirit, he who would teach us these things, that you would be pleased to grant him to us. And so now we ask, Father, humbly, that as we consider this portion of your word together this morning, we hear from the spirit as it's penned, We think of the emotion of it all. We pray, O Father, that we would learn. You would open our eyes and our ears to the truth of this portion of your word, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. When one hears the name of Benedict Arnold, the word our minds almost always substitute for him is that word known as traitor. I suspect, as I even said his name, your brain immediately went there. Benedict Arnold was a loyal member of the U.S. forces, a patriotic war hero, a man who was valued by our founding fathers. Indeed, the founding father, the first president of the United States, General George Washington. Yet due to circumstances, many of them, various in nature, he betrayed America. He betrayed his friends. He heaped hardship upon the country, upon those who loved him and waged war alongside him, trusted him. He turned against this nation and against the efforts of the Revolutionary War. Perhaps you know something of what General Washington felt or those closest to him. Perhaps you have in your own lives a few Benedict Arnolds that you can think of even now as you sit there. One would be more than enough for any human being. Perhaps you have experienced even the betrayal and attacks and 
words of people you thought were your friends. Perhaps you're experiencing that now. It comes from different places, of course. It comes from very familiar places, even places of within our own fellowship as believers in the church. It comes from our family, of which I know painfully so, that some of you even this morning have experienced and are experiencing and even becomes more pronounced at a time of year such as this. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the issue... I don't think I'm going out on any kind of a limb to say that it is a very unpleasant thing. It's a very unpleasant experience. Indeed, it is painful. It hurts. It causes the mind to race, the emotions even to run hot at times. And if this psalm teaches us anything, it teaches us one thing. It teaches us that God's people, even redeemed as they are, insulated uh, by the work of God and His care for us and His pity and His compassion to us, we too, even we, are not immune to betrayal and the hurtful actions of supposed friends. The difference, of course, lies in the response The difference lies in the way in which we respond to that kind of a betrayal, whether it's from family members and friends or church members. It could be even our own children. How do we respond? What will we do? What do we do when these things happen to us? What have you done? Perhaps in your mind's eye, you're thinking of an event, a circumstance. Perhaps you're living at this moment. Perhaps you have lived through it. What did you do? How did you handle it? How, as a child of God, how are you to behave in what is undoubtedly an extremely painful reality of this world? And what can we learn when these things happen? The context of the psalm before us is difficult to ascertain. Some argue that this is a psalm uh, penned by David in reflection upon the efforts of his own son to overthrow his kingdom. And while that would certainly fit by and large with the psalm itself, some argue that Ahithophel is the object of his pain and sorrow. A man he trusted who served him in his kingdom. Perhaps the Spirit of God left us wondering as to the exact context of it all, other than to give us a man who certainly was betrayed multiple times throughout the course of his life, betrayed by a king, betrayed by his own wife, betrayed by his closest son, betrayed by a member of his own military, a man who knew what it was like to be betrayed. Maybe the Spirit left us not knowing the details so that we might not get sidetracked by the reality that it could apply to just about anybody that we have occasion to have relationship with. Not just any singular person, as the psalm makes quite clear here, a person that is close at hand. A sibling, a relative, a brother or sister in the congregation. Somebody you trusted and have trusted. And you've come the reason now to believe that your trust was misplaced. Whatever the issue is that faces the king, it is not an issue that is unlike those that we face in this world today. I know enough of you well enough to know that you've experienced this. Maybe not all of you, but many of you. I am not immune to it, nor are you. The question, of course, is just exactly what do we do when it happens? And how do we respond? And how, in our response, do we picture he who was most betrayed? Most betrayed. How do we picture Christ to those who do that? I'm going to show you here in this psalm that in times of betrayal, leading to pain and sorrow, you are to plead with the God of heaven and trust Him. 
It's very simple, actually. I could almost sit down and stop talking. Don't get excited. I'm not going to do that. But I do want to show you that this psalm is teaching us, if it's not teaching us anything, it's teaching us this. It's teaching us that in times of betrayal, leading to pain and sorrow, and that's what it does, you are to plead with the God of heaven and trust him. Two points as we consider the entirety of the psalm. We'll first consider the psalmist's agony, and then we will consider the psalmist's resolve. I started with the agony because I wanted to establish the the feelings and the emotion of it all for you. I'm not preaching this psalm in any kind of analytical method. I'm preaching it synthetically. The outline is synthetically oriented around these two headings. The agony of the psalmist and the resolve of the psalmist. Let's consider first the psalmist agony. I think as you heard it read... Uh, just a few moments ago, you, I think, unless you weren't listening, could hear, at least in some sense, the emotion that was behind the pen of the king. What's the issue? What is the issue that leads to the agony and despair of the psalmist? And that's precisely what it is. Who are these people? Who are those people that have been giving him trouble and cause such sorrow for him? Well, easy to identify and one that we tend to always run to is the wicked. It's quite clear across the canon of the Bible that the wicked are, the wicked are, are, are always and frequent, always giving the people of God trouble. And frankly, I think it's easier to deal with their trouble because I fully expect it from them. I expect sinners to behave like sinners. I expect the ungodly to act in ungodly ways. And at first glance, the psalm seems to give room for this familiar foe, the wicked. He says as much in verse 3 of the psalm, because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. And while it is true that the godless will often make trouble for God's people and will cause a great deal of harm to them both mentally and physically, there are those, as highlighted in this psalm, who are capable of far more damage. It should be expected, of course, to see the wicked behave in wicked ways, rebel against the God of heaven, the Lord, and his people. The context here seems to go much further than that. In fact, it does go much further than that. As we think of the efforts of the wicked in our lives, uh, we should never be surprised. Brothers and sisters, you should never be surprised when sinners behave that way. I know you are because you're a, pe- you're a person. You, you have feelings and emotions. And, and th- these people who are behaving in such wicked ways are, are made in the same way you're made. They're made in the image of God. And it strikes you as rather odd to see people behave in such atrocious ways. As you watch the news and you see and witness the atrocities and wickedness of men, while it is awful, it really should never surprise us. I mean, after all, the Lord Jesus Christ himself was subjected to the wicked efforts of people. We too should never be surprised, and therefore when the wicked attack the church and go after her, the Bible is full of these people who assault and trouble the righteous. But the psalm here zeroes in on a more specific group of people. A group that's much harder to swallow, a group that's much harder to deal with, a group that's much more difficult to even reason with and even understand. One, in my opinion, has the potential to do far more damage than any wicked person ever. And that is our close companions. The psalmist appears to be under this duress, the agony of it all, because of those that are closest to him. He makes reference to this, of course, in verses 12 and 13. It's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. 
kind of what I just said. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me and that I could hide from him. But it is you. It's interesting. We don't know who you is. He does. We don't. But it's you, whoever you are. A man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Again, he comes back to this in verse 20. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. This person is close to him. Close. Perhaps he's a person that they've shared secrets over coffee. They've confided in one another about their own pains and sorrows and struggles and issues. Whoever it is, it is somebody awfully close to the king. We have people like that. I've made reference to this already, but to go deeper in this area, consider those within our own family. Undoubtedly close. They have our blood. They have our name. They share, we share rooms with them during holidays. We get together on vacations. We do all sorts of different things. Was it not David who was hurt by his own family? What it must have been like to have a son chasing after you. Seeking your throne. Working against and conspiring against his own father. No question it was hard for David to to bear. Only highlighting the reality that this kind of pain, this kind of sorrow, this kind of betrayal can come within our own homes. And some of you I know know that very well. You have children that aren't walking with the Lord. And they don't have any problem telling you. Even mocking you and scorning you for your love of Christ and your commitment to the word of God. You refuse to give ground and because of that your relationship is hurting. It suffers. Some of you have parents who don't know Christ. And as a result, you are marginalized and you are left out of things. Some of you have family members that don't necessarily believe the way you believe. They don't see things the way you see things. And because of that, you're ignored when it comes to family outings. And you're not invited to go out to dinner or to the restaurant. All these things I just mentioned are real examples that are happening right here in this room. And I say that because you need to know it. You might pray for each other. They're painful. They're hard. It's hard when it comes from our own families. Sometimes it comes from our friends. David says as much in verse 13. David was betrayed by his friends. King Saul often represented himself as a friend and a father, but in the end, he was nothing of the sort. The Lord Jesus himself was betrayed by his own friends. One only has to think of Judas, a man who walked with Christ for three, three and a half years, heard the gospel, saw the miracles, saw the kindness and compassion and service of the Savior and betrayed him into the hands of sinful men. What that must have been like. What you do, do speedily, Jesus says. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss?
we walked in the throng, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. That is to say that betrayal can come from other professing Christians. And I don't know, as I worked on this sermon and I thought through some of these categories as given to us in this psalm, I suspect there is no harder opposition than to be opposed by professing Christians themselves. I suspect it is because of the bond that exists between brothers and sisters in the church. A bond that is much stronger than any earthly bond you have with your relatives. A bond that was forged in blood by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's hard, isn't it? To be a member of a church, to be a member of a congregation, and to be betrayed by those you worship with. Some of you have had that happen. For some of you, it will happen. So I was thinking about ways in which to apply the very words of David here and how that might feel. All I could think about was my office as an elder and the elders in this church. As they seek to do, even as David did, to honor the Lord and do all that he has commanded, oftentimes elders can feel marginalized, betrayed, uh, uh, cast aside, acted like they're not important merely because they endeavor to do what is right. Brothers, you will know this pain eventually. I suspect it's harder than even being betrayed by our friends, even betrayed by our family, to be betrayed by brothers and sisters that we pour our lives into day after day, week after week, hour by hour, praying and pleading for the sake of their souls, and to have them walk away hurts. The Lord, too, himself, he experienced this. It was Peter himself, the uh, apostle, the one who preached that glorious sermon on the day of Pentecost. I'll never do what you just said I'll do. I'll never deny you. Not once, not twice, three times. The pain that is rooted in this psalm and the reason of the agony of the psalmist all is rooted in these categories of family and friends and fellow worshipers. And it gets worse as he highlights the actions of these people. What kind of actions might you face from those who would seek to betray you and to marginalize you? And Well, the psalmist gives us two two categories and first one is highlighted by verbal assault in verses 9 and 12 divide their tongues he says I see violence and strife in the city there's not an enemy who taunts me the sin of the tongue you know I was growing up I used to hear this expression all the time maybe because I got picked on all the time I don't know My parents, being well-meaning of it all, and others would say, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know, that could not be further from the truth. Verbal assaults from family and friends, from churchgoers, members of the church, they hurt. The scriptures are very clear about those who would use their tongues for evil. What does it say? It says if they profess Christ and they use their tongues for evil, they're liars. Consider the things that people will do. And you can expect they will do when they seek to deny and betray and treat you poorly. They'll lie about you. They leave out information that would change everything. They slander you behind your back. They talk about you. 
They gossip. The psalmist even makes reference to that in verse 3. In their anger, they bear grudge. In verse 10, they go around in the city. Iniquity is from them. Again, in verse 21, their speech is smooth, but really war is in their hearts. This sin of the tongue is most destructive. It separates close friends. The writer to the Proverbs says, no kidding. You tell a close friend a secret, something you would be horrified that anybody else would know, and then you tell somebody else. You want to split a church? Gossip. Fourth, harboring grudges. Even the psalmist makes reference to that. What does that look like? It looks like you smile with, on one hand, but in your heart of hearts, you're bitter and angry at the person. Bitterness is in your belly. And frankly, brothers and sisters, people are not stupid. They can tell. You might think you're hiding that, but they're not dumb. Flattery, mentioned again, verse 21, his speech was smooth as butter. I've met people like this. There's a difference between flattery and encouragement. Disingenuous flattery is what he has in mind here. It's not truthful, it's a lie. And flattery is not encouragement when it is offered with wrong motives and wrong-headed thinking. The difference is always the goal. If it is designed to encourage and build up the other person, then go crazy. Encourage. Do it a lot. But if it's designed to manipulate, it is sin. It will separate friends. It will heap damage upon people. How painful it must be to find out that one so-and-so so-called encouragement was really designed with selfish motive. They didn't care about you. They only cared about themselves. Physical assault. In some cases, those that would oppose us, our closest friends, our companions, even those we worship, may resort to violence. I'm not yet convinced, even as I think this very second about this psalm, I'm not yet convinced that this is the worst, is worse than the actions I already highlighted. The scars left by physical assault will heal. But oftentimes, the scars left by verbal attacks take years to recover, heal, if ever. That's why we always need to be careful how we use our tongue. But these are ways in which our close friends will betray us, betray you, you them. David is feeling the pronounced effort of a close companion expressed in these ways. What was the effect? Well, he was a man. What do you think his, the effect would be? He says as much as he journals this prayer in verse 2. He says that he was restless. It's one thing to have the wicked oppose you. Frankly, I don't care. Let them. It's a whole other thing to have supported, supposed friends do it. It causes uneasiness. It causes uneasiness when you are around them because you know what they're really about. For the psalmist, it was a 24-7 issue. Verse 17, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint. It's consuming his every thought. He's nervous, he's anxious, he's restless. He sees them coming and he gets uptight. He has anguish in his soul, verse 4. And frankly, unless you, have, unless you are an automaton, a robot, have no feelings whatsoever, you know the heartache that this is and what it causes hardship it brings and a supposed friend turns out to be a bitter rival 
It hurts. It hurts deeply. Fear and trembling. Highlighted in verse 5. Why is he afraid? Because he has a supposed friend that's playing the spy game. The covert, really, enemy. A double agent, perhaps. There's nothing worse than a supposed friend who is really an enemy. He is an undercover, a spy. He is seeking the ruin of his target. He is two-faced, and the limits of his wickedness will have no end. David highlights a sense of abandonment. And a sense of desire. Notice, did you catch the word picture he gives there? Beginning with verse 6. Oh, if I had wings, I'd fly like a dove. I'd get out of here. I'm just going to run away from the whole thing. I'm just going to get as far away from from this problem as I can. Reminds me of a scene in the movie, Forrest Gump. Many of you have seen the movie. Where the young lady was badly abused by her father growing up. And they went and they hid in the cornfield. Her father, a close companion, a friend, family member. She and Forrest went into the cornfield and she knelt and prayed, God, make me a bird, make me a bird so I can fly, 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 fly far away. It's David. Make me a bird. I want to fly away. I want to get away from this. It's too hard. I can't deal with it. I can't bear it. It's the most natural response, I think. But it's not a biblical one. What do we usually do when we face people like this? When we see them coming, what do we do? We cross the other side of the street. I want nothing to do with that. Or I see them coming, I duck into the bathroom. Or I hide in a classroom. Or only I can hide in my study. So, And it's, I can lock it too. That's not the way to deal with it. What is the way? What do we do? When we feel this pronounced betrayal. When family members and friends and church members do the things that I've already said. Well, David doesn't leave us wondering. He gives us by word and example how we should handle it. It's not magic. I'll tell you that now. It's not a formula. It's just stated here plainly, black and white, on the pages of Scripture. We must employ them. And as we do, we must ask for the Spirit's help to do so because these things are very, very, very hard. It might be natural to run away, but it accomplishes absolutely nothing. The problem's still there, the resolution is no closer. The supposed friend is still bugging you. There must be a better way. David gives it to us first in his resolve to pray. I know you're thinking, well, of course. I mean, that's the problem that we have whenever we hear a phrase like, we should pray. The typical Christian response, maybe it wasn't yours, and if not, great. But if it was, then, you know, repent. There's the response we normally give. Oh, well, of course. I know that. It's the most important thing you'll ever do. Just as an aside, this is all free. There was no charge for this. When someone says they're praying for you, it's the most important thing they'll ever tell you. I know you'd rather hear other things. David's first priority is to pray. Notice, he doesn't even tell us the the nature of the problem in the very opening verse of the psalm. He just simply says, I'm in misery. Give ear to my prayer. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Gee, David, you want to clue me in? What's the problem? He gets to that. 
He is so heavily burdened by the events that are around him and the, the betrayal that he is feeling so pronouncedly that the only thing he's got is to pray, and that's exactly what he does. Not a description of the problem yet. It merely states that there is one in the whole, <coughs> in the whole psalm itself, in fact, is a prayer. The first thing he determines to do is pray. The tendency for us, unfortunately, as fallen creatures, is to not do this when we're, when we, we're attacked, when we're betrayed, when there's grudges, when there's bitterness, when there's slander, when there's gossip, when there's disassociation, when there's name-calling, when there's all these things that are painful from close people. What's the natural response? What do we want to do? I'm going to get even. I'm going to get him. It's not what David does. It's not what Jesus did either. You show me one person in the Bible that deserved anything that he got. At least I know that I deserve some of it. I deserve betrayal. I deserve people to lie about me. I deserve people to hold grudges against me. I'm not a perfect specimen. I don't walk on water. He did. He was perfect. He was the Son of God from all eternity. He did everything well, good, right. He never disobeyed his Father. Who? Tell me, show me one person in the Bible that deserves to be treated poorly. It wasn't him. How did he respond? He entrusted himself to his Father. He didn't revile in kind. He didn't turn around in kind. He prayed. How often do we read in the Gospels of Jesus getting away by himself to pray? He prayed. When he saw the Pharisees coming, he prayed. When he saw the Sadducees coming, he prayed. When he saw his own disciples acting like knuckleheads, he prayed. When he was about to go to the cross at the hands of wicked people, he prayed. When his own family disowned him functionally, he prayed. He prayed. David resolves to pray. Notice there's an urgency of it all. Verses 1 and 2. Give ear to my prayer. He's commanding the God of heaven to listen to him. Do we really need to command God to listen? Has he not promised to hear us? David is in such misery and such agony that the urgency of the matter comes out and is an expression. Give ear to my prayer. Look, listen to me. I got something to say and I'm in misery. You pray like that? When you pray out loud, when you pray in homes and family worship, when you pray in your prayer closet, you pray with urgency. Do you pray as though life and death hangs in the balance in your prayers? Do you pray like David? Or is it just emotionless, oh, well, these people don't like me very much, and I don't really like it very much, God. Why don't you go get them? That sounds really urgent, like it really mattered to you. Pray. Pray with urgency. Some of you pray with sweet words, pleasing to the ear. Some of you struggle to find the words. What is the condition of your heart is what precipitates the urgency of the matter. It's not the rhetoric Notice also that not only does he pray with this urgency, he prays with determination. He's determined. Nothing's going to stop me. Verse 23, But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not, shall not live out half their days. But, but I, I this is what I'm going to do. My, whatever they do, it hurts, it's painful, whatever, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. I'm determined. That's what I'm doing. And prayer, brothers and sisters, is a form of that trust. You cannot, you cannot say, I trust God and be a prayerless person. Prayer is an exercise of your need of him and your utter dependence upon him. David knew that. How might he respond to these painful things he prayed? He prayed to the only one who would know what it is like to suffer this way. He prayed to the God of heaven, the God of the Bible, because true prayer is always to him. 
It is rooted in that relationships that exist, that relationship that exists between the one praying and the one to whom he is praying. He prays to the one who sees all things, takes notes of note of all things. He takes note of those who would seek the ruin of his children, to, who, to betray them and to hurt them, to harm them, to slander them, to gossip. Trust me, God listens to every conversation you're having about each other. Don't trust me. Trust the Bible. That's what it says. He appeals to the just judge of heaven and earth. He who is not aloof, not unconcerned about these petty differences that exist. He is not unconcerned. He judges justly and wisely in the interpersonal concerns that affect you. So what should you pray? I can't make this more simple for you. I'm only, not only appealing to you to pray as David prayed, I'm even going to tell you what to pray. Pray for true gospel awareness to come into the life of the person who's seeking your ruin. That's the first thing. David as much does that in verse 19. God will give ear and humble them. That can take various forms, of course, depending on the person. It might lead, it might lead them to true biblical repentance, or it might lead them to true gospel understanding. Be kind and tender to one another, forgiving one another, even as Christ Jesus forgave you. I hold a grudge against one another and heap damage upon your brothers and sisters in here. It's painful. True gospel repentance says that you turn away from that. You pray for your brother and sister in that matter, that they might repent. Or they might come to a right understanding of what the gospel means at all. Failing that, you pray for judgments. David does it. The very end of the psalm, you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. But notice that the psalmist says it's you who will do it, not him. He was the king. He could have had him killed. Whoever it was, he could have had him executed. He leaves the vengeance of God, the vengeance in God's hands. Because he knows that he who judges justly will judge rightly. And so we're determined to pray with urgency. We pray to the God of heaven who will indeed do what is right. We pray with confidence. As the psalmist implores the God of heaven to not hide himself as he prays. Worse than all the attacks of the godless or friends would be the notion that God would hide himself from his children when they pray. I can't, the thought is too terrible to contemplate. Brothers and sisters, he doesn't hide himself from you. He may not answer you as fast as you might like. Who here thinks he does? But he always answers perfectly and wisely for you. He hears you when you plead with him. And our Father in heaven did not hide himself from his son when he prayed on the cross, and he will not hide himself from you when you cry out to him. You pray. You pray for soft hearts. You pray to avoid bitterness. You pray that the person would come to an understanding of Christ. You pray for true repentance. You pray that your heart would be guarded from it. All the issues of life spring. You pray. Because if you don't, you will not respond rightly. Second, you trust. Not only pray, you trust. David, at the end of the psalm, he says as much, I will trust in you. The whole psalm is an expression of trust because he's praying to the God of heaven. The object of his trust is, the, is that which the entire psalm is pointing us towards. The God who is. Therefore, when we pray and pray, we must we are demonstrating our dependence on him. Why? What reasons do we have? Well, we trust in his good pleasure. Even that painful experience is not outside God's providence. Well, not, it's not. 
Well, it's not. It was God's good pleasure for whatever reason. The matters that highlighted in the psalm that happened to David that were painful, indeed they were, and felt so deeply by him were not done by accident. They were ordered. Now listen. And this is what we have to get through our heads. And I know I'm long. Forget the clock. It's too important. We need to get this through our heads. Things that happen to us that aren't pleasant. Betrayal. Pain. All of it. It comes from a good, loving father. You have to tell yourself that because that's what the Bible teaches. They're not accidents. They're ordered by him for his reasons. I was struck by a quote from Kelvin. There it is. You knew I was going to get him in there eventually. Just this week in God's providence I was reading before I even got to this point in the sermon. Reflecting on difficult things that happen as coming from a good father. Here's what he says. Divine providence, especially when it comes to evil, sin, and suffering, is beyond human understanding. Beza, that is a contemporary of John Calvin, heard Calvin say in the days before his death, on May 27, 1564, he said the following. I wonder if you could say this. I don't know if I could. Thou, O Lord, bruisest me, but it is enough for me that it is thy hand. David cries out to the God of heaven. I'm in, I'm in, ag, I'm in misery, but it's good enough. It comes from your hand. I'm trusting you. Second, we trust his perfect plan. Because God is not aloof. Again, Kelvin, it is true that we have not entered into his secret counsel to know how he has disposed everything. But he reveals to us sufficient for us to know as much as we have business knowing. And here's the point. We know that he wants to aid us. He said it. He's not a deceiver. He does what he wants. He wants to aid us. He does not want to abandon us in our need. Tell me why you can't trust him. But my friend, tell me why you can't trust him. But, he, but it was my wife. Tell me why you can't trust him. But it was a close family member. Tell me why you can't trust him. The process for David is the same process for you and me. We keep on keeping on. Day after day. Praying and trusting the God of heaven who will not abandon you to his, to you, to his or your enemies. They're going to suffer their just deserts by his hand if they will not repent and turn to Christ. He is not aware of your, unaware of your struggle. You persevere. Psalm 55 is a psalm about real life. As is all the Bible, by the way, but I, it sounds good. It preaches. It's a psalm about, all, about real life. It's practical in every respect, for there is not a, anyone here today that has not suffered at the hands of some wicked person and to the point, the hands of supposed friends. Betrayal is a hard thing to swallow. No one ever said it was easy. It isn't. I've been betrayed by family, by friends, and by church people. It's a misery that is hard to put into words. David did the best he could under the inspiration of the Spirit. And I know some of you well enough to know that it's something you experience even today. If you haven't, you will. But the psalm is designed not only to highlight the problem, but the solution one that is rooted in a calm, peaceful, steady trust in the God of heaven. The psalm is a picture of what your Lord did. 
The whole psalm is a picture of what your Lord did. He was opposed by fellow worshipers and religious leaders. He was challenged on every side by them. He was accused of wrongdoing by friends and foe. At one time, he was even accused of doing things by the power of Satan. How'd you like that accusation? He was denied by his friends, even a very close friend, Peter. And he was betrayed into the hands of wicked people by a supposed friend, a disciple, one of the twelve. What did he do? Called down legions of angels. I am all wiped out. Wouldn't have been wrong. It's not what he did. Peter tells us as much in 1 Peter 2, exactly what he did do, and then I'm done. Once again, I want to put Peter on the wrong side of Hebrews. 1 Peter 2 and verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. David teaches us to do that, to trust, to pray. And as he does that, he shows us what your Lord did. We must do what he did. What other solution is there? What other way to resolve painful subjects that matter such as this? We pray and we trust, we persevere. He who has called you to this is faithful. You can trust him. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the comfort it brings us in the face of hard, hard things. And we confess to you that we blunder this all the time, but we pray that you now would imprint upon our minds and our hearts these things from David's pen, from the Spirit himself. We would indeed plead with you and trust you in these very painful times. And you'd be gracious to us throughout. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake.